With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brudico. Ronaldo, as you're all well aware, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad-ranging topics along with our lightning round. As always, we'll include questions and comments from you, our audience, although we are going to be announcing that for next month we're going to have a new policy where we will not be taking live questions on the air. We will, however, take questions in advance uh, at our website, and you can either write directly to info at worldbusiness.org or you can go to the website for worldbusiness.org and click on Contact Us and and, uh, put in your question there. We'll take those questions and we will read them on the air as they come in in advance. Uh, For today, however, if you'd like to play a question, uh, the dial-in number is area code 347-989-8946. If you do that, then hit the number one key, and we will see a signal that allow us to open up the line and allow you to speak. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is, as always, to present you with our uh, listeners concrete actionable ideas. Today we're going to be focusing on the Occupy Wall Street movement. Uh, as Ronaldo put it, the new American Revolution has been launched. What does shut down Wall Street or Occupy Wall Street mean, and what does it mean for you? Our second topic today is going to be a European update. Uh, Greece goes on strike again, and our other favorite European topics. Uh, what does this all mean? What are the implications for what happens in Europe, uh, in America, which are actually fairly significant? I'm going to introduce Ronaldo now, and one of the purposes of these calls is to present our listeners with concrete actual ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to you, our listeners. Ronaldo, can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails today as we go forward in these somewhat uh, tempestuous times? Love to, Howard, and thank you, and welcome to everyone. Um, this is a kind of an exciting show in a way. It's, the, uh, it's October 13th of 2011. And if you go back in the, uh, in, the, in the recordings of these shows that we've done, two months ago, uh, I urged all of you listening to this to help start the next American Revolution. And I even said specifically, it's time for people to go to the streets. And if you go back and listen to that show two months ago, and I repeated it last month, I can tell you I'm thrilled about Occupy Wall Street because, and by the way, I don't have any inflated sense of ego that tells me that people are on Wall Street or all, all over the country protesting because of me or my show. They probably haven't got a clue about this show. The reason I'm excited about it is because I meant it when I said it, that that was the real next step the American public had to take. Let me give you an example. I think Congressman, uh, former Congressman Alan Grayson, said it best. 
there's something fundamentally wrong you have to address in the streets when you've got 24 million Americans who can't find full-time work, 50 million Americans who can't see a doctor when they're sick, and 47 million Americans who need government aid to feed themselves. Last but not least, there are 15 million American families who owe more on their mortgages than their homes are worth. When you have that litany of pain across the spectrum of the average American, it's clear to me that what's going on initially in Wall Street with the Occupy Wall Street movement and now spreading to other cities is a legitimate upwelling from the 98% or 99% as they like to call themselves of the public who have been disadvantaged by a very small aristocracy. These days, to me, Howard looks so much like the days of Louis the Sixteenth. This, this is what people didn't see coming in the French aristocracy that resulted in the French Revolution. Will there be violence as a result of the Occupy Wall Street movement? I hope not, although we should all take note that Mayor Bloomberg of New York believes that's what could come next if these issues are not addressed adequately. And the reason is, it is literally true, and not by accident. There's an absolutely excellent article, which, um, which came out very recently, uh, in, and it covered the question of whether this is happening by accident, or whether, in fact, we created an aristocracy actually intentionally, meaning that we actually did it with conscious thought by the people in charge. And the, the particular article I'm referring to, which I think... Uh, uh, is um, uh, worth looking at, actually dealt with the question of how we have, over the last um, 20 years or so, 10, 20 years, but particularly the last 10, how we've intentionally created an uneven playing field for the vast majority of Americans. <clears throat> so let me tell you what I tweeted this last week. I hope some of you read it, because I've now had a chance to talk to Deepak Chopra about it, to Barbara Marks Hubbard, and several other thought leaders and I've asked them what they thought of this, and they've all encouraged me to repeat it because they believe it's accurate. The fundamental nature of the Occupy Wall Street movement is simply this. It is a cry for social justice. It's a cry to say our society is inherently unfair to those of us who represent 99% of the population, and it is tilted in favor of the rich and super-rich, that 1%. And they, like the aristocrats in Louis XVI's time, are now faced with either helping to create a more just and equitable society or risk the possibility that the choice as to what society they live in will be taken from them. Bernardo, let me intercede for one quick moment, going back to the French Revolution. I think most people are on the impression that the French Revolution was launched by the disenfranchised um, poor, starving masses of France. That actually is a complete fallacy. The leaders and the participants in the French Revolution were essentially the middle-class citizens of Paris who were outraged by the disparities in their country at that time that were taking place at a time when there's also a sense of rising expectations as to what was possible. Uh, they saw the example in America uh, that they helped support a few years earlier. Uh, and it, again, it was the middle class, not the, not the poor starving masses, that launched the French Revolution. Yeah, I think, and by the way, there were a number of um, well-intentioned aristocrats that participated in that as well, although they were a very small minority. But, you know, with this, with this whole attitude 
of the aristocracy in America. And you know who an aristocrat is in America. It's anyone who perceives that their condition is so far above that of their fellow citizens that they really don't need to worry about the things that the rest of us are concerned about. So when you see a powerful CEO of a Fortune 1000 company who's making tens of millions of dollars a year, they don't think like you do and I do. They, they actually think that they're in a world all their own. They feel like a French aristocrat in Louis XVI's time. If you see people who have enormous inherited wealth, who absolutely refuse to play by the rules and proceed to break them and don't care what harm they do in the process, I'm now referring specifically to the Koch brothers and many others like them, they, they think of themselves as aristocrats. Now, the problem with being an aristocrat, even if you think you're the, 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 the best fed, best housed, most powerful aristocrat in the world, and you, let's say that you have the biggest boat in the world, and you've got the owner's cabin, you've got the owner's suite on that giant boat, it's not such a great thing if the name of the boat is Titanic. And what people need to realize is the greed that is working, together with the degree of stupidity that I'm seeing in so many directions, I'm now referring to Europe as well as the American political system, when you mix an enormous amount of greed with a sense of entitlement, which is what the aristocracy has, the aristocrats have, together with an incredible amount of hubris and a healthy dose of stupidity, when you mix that all together, you have a stew that could cause literally international economic collapse. We are as close to that day today as we were in 2008. We narrowly averted it in 2008. When we narrowly averted it, it yielded the worst recession since the Great Depression. And that was the best outcome we could hope for, and we did. That recession, some would argue, has never ended. Others would argue we're back in it. However you look at it, we're clearly in deep financial problems in the United States, and they're getting worse, even as the aristocratic class seems to not care and continues to fund disruptive political tactics that will cause the real issues to be not to go unaddressed, i.e. jobs, medical care, schooling. In a nation that used to lead the world in public education, we've now dropped into like in the 30s or somewhere below that. In a nation that used to lead in infant mortality, we're barely within the top 50 nations in the world. In a nation that used to lead with technological innovation, we're still holding on, but barely. In a nation which used to lead with stability of currency, we're getting close to the bottom of the deck. In a nation that used to lead as, and, and, be, and was seen as a beacon of hope and light for every bright entrepreneur in the world, if they could just get to America, their ideas could become real and their dream could become true, that is no longer the case. Now, in that sort of a disassembly environment, and you have on top of it what's going on in Greece, in, in, not just in Greece, but in Europe, I just want to tie this thought of what's going on in the United States, which we tend to look at too closely from the American point of view, and we forget to see it in the bigger picture, which is what's going on in Europe, because that's part of the global economy too, don't forget. And those are our main customers and our main suppliers. So what's going on, apart from China, what's going on there? Well, a tiny country of 5.5 million people, Slovakia, literally stopped the Greek bailout from going through. Now, when it did, the government of Slovakia collapsed, which is a good thing, and a deal was cut within 24 hours to put together an approval. So the current pending small but not big enough to work bailout for the Greek problem is going to go into place. Greeks, by the way, are being punished again. They're not going to get the money until mid-November. Interesting all by itself. The formula is being used in Europe, and I want to say this very carefully so you know that it's not hyperbole, the formula that's being used in Europe to deal with the European 
euro crisis cannot and will not work. Period. End of statement. Cannot work. Will not work. Why do you think that is, Ronaldo? Why do you think that this uh, procedure is not going to? Well, actually, do you want to go into this now, or do you want to save this Greece for the second half of our show? We'd like to save the European thing for the second half of the show. Uh, but, but, But let's just stop with the idea that the European Union will have to fundamentally address what's really broken in Europe. And the the sooner they do that, the sooner I will start to breathe easily that we're not going to create ourselves another global depression. But we are hanging by a thread. And and, and that thread could be cut by any one of a number of of events, just like, you know, people wondered how World War I started. Was it really the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand? Yeah, sort of it was. That was the triggering event. But it was a minor event. The seeds of that controversy were sown by so many bigger issues that when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, it was just the excuse that actually triggered that massive killing spree. Okay, We have a similar position today. We don't know. There's so much powder and so much gunpowder in this keg, and there are so many different wicks that could light it, that you don't know, I don't know, what will light it. But the course we are on is not sustainable, meaning it will go boom eventually, and sooner rather than later if we're not careful. Well, let, let's go back to some basics first. I mean, what is the Occupy Wall Street mo- movement? I mean, what is it? I mean, right now we have clusters of people hanging out on Wall Street. What is that? What is that about? What are they well, trying cry- to accomplish? I think it's what are they doing? Social- what they're saying is it's a cry for social justice. What they're saying is we're here because society. We, we now realize we have unmasked the false hopes we've been fed by an aristocracy that that. that that basically survives like a leech off of our efforts, we now know we have been screwed. And you have. America, you've been screwed. So the 99% are saying we want social justice. In other words, we want to be, we want to live in a country again where what happens to us matters. We want to know that we can, that we can recreate the middle class in America because we've been losing it. We want to know that it's going to be safe for our kids to go to college. You know, when I went to college in the uh, 60s, I could not believe, the, I mean, I was so grateful that the University of California put me through uh, graduate school, through law school, at a cost today which is less than the price of books for one year. And, and it did it because it was the best higher education system in the world, the University of California uh, system. Now, we've destroyed that system, basically. It has plummeted. And not only have we destroyed it, but we've made it so that the kids who do get into the University of California system today end up with debts that will take them half a lifetime or longer to pay. That is insane. We need to make it so that every person in the United States of America with ability who can get into something like the UC system should be able to get in for free. That's the way it was, and that's the way it needs to return. Now, But to do that, you can't have so many greedy people at the top sucking all the cash out of the system. You can't have people making tens and fifties and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars a year at the top sucking all that liquidity out of the system and refusing to pay their fair share of taxes and distorting the political process as they go along so that they get more and more of what they want. I was saying to you earlier about this um, article that literally dealt with how systematic it has been that we've changed the playing field in favor of the rich against the average. So we need to recreate a middle class in America, and that's what they occupy Wall Street's about. They've correctly identified 
that the entrenched economic forces that run this country and, frankly, run the world. Remember, the premise of the World Business Academy is that business is the most powerful institution on the planet, period. It is, and Occupy Wall Street has finally figured that out. And what they're saying is if we really want to go to the heart of the problem, it's bigger than Democrats and Republicans. The heart of the problem is corporate and personal greed, which is destroying our civilization. So that's what Occupy Wall Street's about. Right. There's two things I want to mention. First, you read in the paper, everybody's saying, well, what are these people asking for? What are they asking for? Uh, I think you've sort of articulated that. But the real question is, will they be heard? And two, if they're heard, will they effect any kind of change? And how, you know, to have something be changed, you need a venue. What is the venue for change that could actually accomplish something? Uh, okay, uh, Howard, that's a great two questions, but let me interpose one in front of those. Okay? And that question is this. Will they continue? In other words, if you believe that the people who are now energized by the Occupy Wall Street movement, energized not only in Wall Street, but energized in communities all over America. And, the, and by the way, they're getting into smaller and smaller towns all the time. I mean, it was a point for a while, it was just, you know, New York, San Francisco, and L.A. Now it's everywhere. Will the people continue, or will they get tired, as I'm sure the aristocrats in this society want and hope, and will it be possible that at their cocktail parties tonight and next week, they'll say the equivalent of, let them eat cake? Now, I mean, if they do, if, they, if, the, if the aristocrats take that position, which they're taking that, by the way, that is their attitude right now. Their attitude is, um, and, and I think it's so disgusting, uh, what Eric Cantor has done, calling them a mob. This is the exact opposite of a mob. This is what the country was based on. It's the citizens petitioning for the redress of grievances, and their grievance is that their society is being stolen by very, very well-heeled money interests that are rigging the game for their own benefit. So that the rich, the 1%, they don't worry about putting their kids through college. they got tons of money to do it. They don't worry if the, air, if the air transportation system is falling apart and, frankly, isn't being upgraded the way it should because they fly in private jets. They don't worry about whether or not you and I live in a safe community because they live in gated ones, which are armed and protected. Now, for those of you on this call who haven't been to Brazil, which is a classic example of a country with a tremendously wealthy aristocrat, you know, aristocrat and unbelievably poor people on the bottom, Every decent apartment building has got its own armed guard, and it's got concertina wire on the walls above it, around it, because it's not safe to live in Brazil with money at this date, even as advanced as Brazil is. It's not safe to live with money and not be behind a wall with concertina wire and armed guards. Now, America is not capable of getting to that point because the 99% won't let it. So the first question I interposed was, Will they stay? If they will stay till they get a result, yes, they will get a result. Why will they get a result? Because what they're doing is unmasking the fallacy that we, that we can continue on in our present course and everything will work out in the end, because it won't. The course the United States of America is on is not sustainable. And it's not sustainable in so many ways that the time that we have left to change direction is getting shorter and shorter. If you sense a certain urgency in my voice, it's because it's real. We are running out of time. The fact that the jobs bill was rejected just last week leaves us with no hope 
except maybe President Obama will put one piece after another in. Maybe he will use his power of his, his bully pulpit to literally go congressional district by congressional district naming names, go do every single day he needs to stand by another bridge that's falling down. Can you imagine the protesters were not allowed to go on that bridge because the excuse was given that the bridge might collapse with people walking on it? Now, that, that's insane, but that's the country we live in. More than half our bridges are in advanced state of disrepair. Okay? We've got trains plowing into each other in Oakland, Cal- and track trains plowing into each other in Oakland, California, because we have inadequate switching mechanisms and because we have one of the worst train systems in the world, even though we had the best one in 1880 to 1900 to 1920, 1950. So there are so many places we need to go. Now, let me give you some good news. Because remember, I'm the guy who keeps saying I've never seen or heard of a problem that can't be solved with today's resources and today's technology. Still true. I do not believe, and I really want to put down a, 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 and I will debate any economist anywhere in the world on this next comment. I do not believe we need 10 years of pain in order to have 10 or 20 years of gain. We don't need any more pain at all. We can end the pain now. If you want housing prices to come back, give people reason to have confidence in their government and in their economy. And you can do that real easy. Create jobs. And the president, God bless him, if he doesn't realize by now, and I can't believe he doesn't, that he can no longer say, gee, I'm the underdog, gosh, it's their fault, I'm sorry, Mr. President, we only have one president at a time, and it's you right now. This is an economic war. You're in charge. Get us out of it. Don't tell me why you couldn't. Don't tell me the Republicans wouldn't let you. Don't tell me that Harry Reid can't get 60 votes. I don't want to hear any of the crap. Neither does the the Occupy Wall Street. What they're saying is we're tired of hearing excuses and rationale. We're making it really simple. Fix the system so that the 99% are no longer being abused by the 1% for the 1%'s benefit. Let Let me, again, bring you back to a really key question. And that's what I call venue. For things to change, laws to change, things to happen, you need a place, a forum, either constitutional, or I shouldn't say constitutional, you need it at the congressional level, we need it in the courts, you need somebody somewhere, some mechanism somehow to change a process. Where can that change happen given the current political climate that we have a very fractured uh, country in terms of its spirit, in terms of uh, legislative alignment and so forth. Where, where's the venue? What's the venue? Oh, I think the venue is right where they are. It's on the streets. Um, people are concerned right now, and I think some of you saw the slugfest that went on in the last few days between the Koch brothers and Karl Rove. Okay? And the fight was over the future of who's going to control the Republican Party, and Karl Rove basically said, hey, it's my party. Get back in line. Quit fighting. Quit sending candidates in who will get slaughtered in a general election. And the Koch brothers just laughed him off and said, wait a minute, you've got to beg for your money. We have all our own money. We don't need you. By the way, the Koch brothers, I think, um, could be facing an indictment in the not-too-distant future. And if the government, our government, had any guts from the facts I have seen, they will get indicted. Because there are several things they've done which I believe now rise to the level of criminal, uh, literally criminal issues. Um, what might, has, what might, might those allegations be? Uh, they have to do with their overseas dealings, but don't let me get distracted on that for right now. I want okay. to go back to your question, which is the good, how does the change occur? So people are concerned that the third party, the Tea Party, will fracture 
the Republican Party. In fact, the Democrats are hoping they do because that's their, that's how they hope someone like Obama could get in back and be reelected. Okay, what if a fourth party started too? And what if it started out of the Occupy Wall Street movement? And what if that fourth party went to somebody like Russ Feingold or former Congressman Grayson and said, "You lead us. Tell us the truth, and you lead us. We want to take our country back." I predict such a fourth party movement would actually succeed. And the next president of the United States would not be a Democrat, would not be a Republican, would not be a Tea Partier. It would be an Occupy Wall Street person. Because well over two-thirds of the country actually do agree with what those people are complaining about. And over two-thirds of the public, I'd say probably closer to 75% of the public, has directly or indirectly an immediate family member suffered from the lack of medical care, suffered from a job that they can't get, suffered from partial unemployment when they wanted full-time unemployment, suffered by having to be downgraded to flipping burgers when they used to be an engineer, suffered by being on a road that, a road that collapsed or had an accident from a road where they drove into a pothole so darn big it, it, it ruined their undercarriage. I mean, people understand that the system's broken. What they were accepting up until now because of the con- corporate control of media they were accepting the possibility that maybe it was just them. But now what Occupy Wall Street is doing is that people are going, oh, wait a minute, you two and you two, you mean we really are the 99%? Yeah, hot tip, you are. By the way, it may only be 95%. But the point is, it's way over 75%. It's okay. 95 at the very least. Let me at least All play those devil's people are getting hurt because of the aristocrats who are sucking money, wealth, and power for their own limited purposes. And as I said in the invitation a long time ago that the World Business Academy created on YouTube, the invitation says, when is enough enough? See, greed mixed with hubris, with arrogance, and with a, a sense of entitlement, when you mix all that together into a stew and you create political control out of that stew, you get what we have right now, which is a system in advance collapse. Right, but let, again, let me play devil's advocate here for a moment and sure. take us back three years. 2008, the Democrats sweep into power, perhaps with a mandate for you know change that's good for the country. After two years of sort of legislative indifference by the Democrats and taking forever to pass a health insurance bill, not a health care bill, let's be clear about that, um, you had enough countervailing forces from all quarters coming back and basically yanking the House of Representatives out of the Democratic column, weakening the Democratic control in the Senate, and basically throwing it to the more conservative wing of the Republican Party. You have a split Congress when you go district by district. Now, we may have people literally occupying Wall Street, replicating that all over the country, which is clearly happening, and there was an interesting statistic I'll throw out on the CNN website, their sort of daily poll, which is, again, not a scientific poll. It simply asked how many people among their readers would participate in some form of an Occupy Wall Street event. That number was 20%. Occupy Wall Street had only been around for about two weeks at that point, and all of a sudden you had 20% of the population willing to join in. Nonetheless, you have to take this back to Congress, which that is our power to enact legislation and change and make the rules that govern the rest of the country. And you have a very divided Congress, and you get congressmen reelected or congresspeople reelected district by district, not by a broad movement 
Um, so when you go district to district, are we going to see that change? Are we going to see these voices appear in enough numbers to change the balance of power? Okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. Before, let's let's start with something more fundamental. If, if what you're seeing, if what you're seeing in the streets, which I think you are, we started with Occupy Wall Street. You're the beginning of a revolution. Okay, let's let's be clear. We're not talking about a couple of people having hot dogs for the weekend because they were bored and going to go back to business as usual tomorrow morning. So I interposed a question. I said, if the people stay in the streets and they keep going to the streets, these decisions will be end up being reached in the streets. That's the nature of a revolution. And anybody who thinks that isn't true just has to look at Egypt, Tunisia. I mean, I could list several countries now around the world, not just in the Middle East, who are getting turned upside down in totalitarian countries where all the power was on one side, all the wealth was on one side, and it still didn't, wasn't enough. Now, those societies had only a violent means to change their outcome, although you can say Egypt did it without violence, pretty much. We, in the United States, do not need to have violence because there are so many outlets for us to, to exercise that we can actually get the streets to work for us if we want to. Let me give you an example specifically on the question you asked about congressional, congressional uh, districting lines. So the biggest basket case in, in the United States up until a year ago was California on every level, right? Highest unemployment, or one of the highest unemployment, the top two, I think. Um, the, the debt crisis, default on debt, uh, closing schools. I mean, you name it, California had it. And it was completely up the creek and, out, and, and without a paddle. It was, like, finished. And today, California has created a stunning comeback. Why? Because... The people of California were often criticized in California for engaging in what they call plebiscite government. Gee, in California, everything is done by referendum. Yeah, because the, because the legislatures kept screwing up. So what are the two things we did in the last set of elections in California, which literally has changed the dynamic? Number one, we took districting into the hands of a citizen panel. We said, that's it. We're not going to let the Democrats and Republicans keep doing this to us indefinitely. We're going to start to exercise some citizen control over where congressional district boundaries are drawn. Huge, huge change. Now, will it change overnight all the boundaries? No. But what it did is it shot a, 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 it shot a, a cannon across the bow of, of, of the political system saying, that's it, we're not going to let you guys keep doing it because we trusted you to do it for all these years, and look what you did. You just feather bedded yourselves into permanent jobs. Second thing that happened in California as we passed a law that says you do not need more than 51% to pass a budget. Seems like a reasonable thing in a democracy. But the need to have a two-thirds majority on a budget, not a tax increase, just a budget being passed, caused the legislature to always have to keep padding and throwing more crap into the budget to serve one more vote. So every legislator got paid, in effect. But once we passed that, guess what happened? We had now. There's another thing they passed, which is good, which is no assemblyman in California gets paid their check if the budget hasn't been adopted. I actually like that. I think it's appropriate. All Congress people should stop getting paid in the absence of a budget because if there's no budget, why are they getting paid? But putting that aside for a moment, I don't think that's the thing that really changed it. What changed it was we only needed 51%, and with 51%, you can get a budget through California, and the budget may not be anybody's favorite idea, but it's one that works. So to Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown's credit, he was willing to swallow his pride and be, in effect, a minority governor, but go with the majority. And, and, and look what's even happened just in the last week 
where California now, because you can get something passed at 51%, because you're not required to do everything for a small minority, we just got a gun law passed in California, which says you're not allowed to walk around anymore with a gun on your, on your, on your hip. Like you live in Tombstone, Arizona in 1880. Actually, Tombstone, Arizona, they couldn't do that anymore because Wider told them to stop doing it in town. But the point is... Actually, in Arizona, you can do it. You can do it again in Arizona. It's not, yes. But, but when, when Wider cleaned up Tombstone, Arizona, the first rule he passed was check your guns with the sheriff's office when you ride into town. And his theory was there's no reason for you to have a gun in Tombstone except you're going to kill some human, and my job as sheriff is to keep you from killing each other. So you can keep your guns at the sheriff's office, and when you ride out of town, grab your guns and go to the next place. But when you're in town, no guns. Well, we just passed a law that says you can't carry a gun openly on your hip in California. I think that's a huge change back to a more civilized society. How can you have an intelligent conversation with anybody when you're looking at them and they've got a gun on their hip? You're going to be in fear. There's no way to have a civil society in civil discourse if people are walking around with guns strapped to their hips. So just even that simple thing happened after all these years of having the NRA run our country. My final comment on this is very simple. If California can change those two basic things, districting and 51% budget, 51% approval to get laws passed, the same thing would work for the United States of America. There is no constitutional provision that it calls for a filibuster in the United States Senate. That's something the Senate invented and the Senate can get rid of. In fact, I hold Harry Reid personally responsible at the beginning of this current Senate season. He didn't amend the rule to get rid of the filibuster. He should have. Because that filibuster rule is keeping us confused from where the real battle lines are to be drawn. And the Senate has no right, the Senate of the United States has no right to permit itself to be governed by 40 people when we have a Constitution that says that 51 senators govern the Senate. And it's time for that to stop. Now, if we can't stop it legally during the pendency of a current Senate session, which I believe is the case, great. Charge it the next we every time the Senate reconvenes which is every two years, you can change. Now, I think those changes came out of protests and plebiscite democracy in California, and the same changes could come out of plebiscite democracy in the United States. So if more and more people go to the streets, and it becomes clearer and clearer that what they want is social justice, they want jobs, the political class will end up listening to them. And the reason why, you're going to love the punchline here, is because... The economy will continue to slide so bad that the aristocrats who actually run the country, called business people, will go, oh, damn, this is now working against us. There's a statistic I want to leave everybody with. People think that only the middle class is now getting hurt. Not true. Here's the good news, folks. Even the wealthy in Beverly Hills are continuing to see dramatic slides in their home prices. Now, if you're a billionaire and you lose $20 million on your house, it doesn't really change your lifestyle. True. But what's important to note is the fallacy that somehow if you're rich enough, what's going on won't affect you. That fallacy is being shown to be what it is, which is a fallacy. The United States of America, and I've said this many times on this program, only works with a strong, vibrant, successful middle class. Our economy won't work any other way. Right. So, so you, let me, let's take so a that, break so there even the rich have, Even the rich have got to change. Let's take a break here because it is time to do our lightning round, which, as our listeners know, is a series of quick insights, comments, and commentaries on various asset classes such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. Uh, we don't have any particular focus today, but uh, where would you like to start, Ronaldo? Ah, gee, you know, um, weren't you, gonna, weren't you talking about the idea today for financial literacy of talking about what does Wall Street mean? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, we can do so, that. Should we just go there? Uh, sure, sure. Okay. So uh, I don't think most people historically know how Wall Street came about and what it actually is and what it isn't. Um, the sort of uh, apocryphal stories about Wall Street is that back in colonial times, uh, people used to gather and sit on a wall in lower New York uh, to trade goods, products, companies, businesses, whatever else was going on, and that eventually, over time, that meeting group uh, formed itself into an ex exchange, which is the ultimately the New York Stock Exchange. And literally on the exchange, if you wanted to trade a share of a stock, you had to go through a organization that controlled a seat on that wall traditionally or a seat at the exchange. Um, you would ask them to place your orders to buy or sell some entity. Uh, they would then execute it on the exchange, and you would then get your proceeds minus whatever charge that seat holder had. Uh, into this era, um, the actual physical presence on Wall Street of people who trade has actually almost vanished. Um, it's all done electronically. Um, the New York Stock Exchange has held on for years with a floor system, uh, but even that has been highly diminished in terms of its significance and importance um, over the past 10, 15 years as technology has ramped up. And as NASDAQ, which is a separate electronic trading system that exists globally uh, through a network of participating firms and has no single physical presence anywhere in the world, other than maybe its, its office headquarters, um, is really where trading happens uh, for the most part. And the same for the New York Exchange and the other exchanges around the world. Very little actually happens on site anymore. Uh, these have become almost more symbolic centers, uh, the exchanges, than an actual physical trading presence. And what we often call Wall Street is simply uh, the industrialized business trading entities that exist out there. Uh, you know what? In fact, I would say, uh, Howard, because of the, you correctly said that Wall Street is now virtual. It, Wall Street's a state of mind. Wall Street is a state. It's become a state of mind, a trade, so to speak. Can occur anywhere in cyberspace, anywhere in the world at any second, and often does. So what Wall Street is, is it's a historical vestige, i.e. it's the name of something that actually was a place where trading occurred, where capital markets became fully grown. In other words, the concept probably of what we now call capital markets probably started in the coffee houses of London with Lloyd's, but matured and became powerful in the United States of America in a place called Wall Street. And so now, Wall Street is basically a state of mind. It's, it's that state of mind which sees the interrelationship of the flows of goods and, and services loosely through the lens of a capital markets, meaning, so capital markets, folks, means um, markets that are, that are controlled by the, by the interchange of capital and labor, as opposed to command and control markets, which are controlled by, like, Putin controls Russia, so that's command and control, like what he says goes. In the United States, it's, it's different. It's in, in, in the rest of the de developed world, it's what you, what you can do with the control of capital and labor and how you mix them makes for more of an oligopoly rather than a, um, a single leader like a Putin who controls everything. So could I... Command and control markets is the old communist system that Putin's re recreating, and and the capital market system is what we usually refer to as what happened in the coffee houses of London and became Wall Street. Right. Now, and even the physical presence of large banking entities that 
were the primary and still are the primary players in this game. After 2001 and the collapse of the World Trade Center, uh, the exchange next door that handled commodities, many of those firms no longer are even in downtown uh, New York or surrounding the Wall Street area. They are scattered throughout the metropolitan New York area and, in fact, scattered around the entire country. Um, it is no longer necessary to have a single presence anywhere, uh, just as many people work from home. In a sense, large institutions can work from anywhere in the world, place their trade. So, again, what we're talking about here is really a metaphor at this point in time. And for, a state of mind. And a state of mind for business. Yeah. And, 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 and we, all, we, do, we do appear to have a question coming before in. Before I do, I just want to put because this article, and, and by the way, for, for anybody who's interested in this article I, was, I keep referring to, it's in foreign affairs. There's actually two of them. Um, there was one in January, February of 2011 by Robert Lieberman, in which he talks about, how, and this is what I think replaced Wall Street. So Wall Street was a capital markets-driven way of looking at the world. What has replaced it is what uh, political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson called the winner-take-all economy. What that means is in the face of the collapse that happened in 2008, 2009, the people who brought that collapse on not only have not gone to jail, not only have not been, found, been, been, been fined, they've gotten far richer. That, that's, that's what they mean by the winner-take-all economy. Right. And the other article that I was referring to, also from Foreign Affairs, had to do with um, the, uh, uh, why the, the broken contract, it's called, and an article by George Packer that came out October 11th. Uh, and it's called The Inequality and American Decline. So I really urge you to look at that, as well as there's an article in The Nation magazine in this current issue, which actually explains why Occupy Wall Street makes so much sense and why it's actually precisely what we need at this point in time. I'm sorry, Howard, we have a question. We actually actually have two lined up. Uh, and I'm going to ask our uh, listeners to, again, keep your questions concise and brief so we can respond to them uh, appropriately. And, and then can move on. So the first caller is from area code 202. The last four digits are 1750, and I'm going to attempt to open your line now. I believe that line is open. Would you please identify yourself and uh, then state your question? Hey, gentlemen, this is Matt Renner. Uh, I have been working with the Occupy Wall Street organizers and have been on the ground there now since the first day. I just want to give you a short report. Um, By the way, Matt, I'm glad you called in, and thank you for uh, all you're doing every day and every week. Matt is is one of the key people behind a thing called truthout.org, which basically is one of the few really uh, trustworthy um, informational outlets on the Internet that I really repose great confidence in. And to disclose my bias, I frequently publish. (laughs) Go ahead, Matt. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you so much for your... uh for your work on this. And, you know, I was one of the people that heard your last show, and I do agree that, you know, this is the time for people to get into the streets. Um, I just wanted to break a little news. There was talk of the protesters allowing the cleaning crews in to clean the park tomorrow. Um, The the mayor has basically said they're going to be forcing their way in to clean the grounds. Um, That has been decided against at the General Assembly, so there will be a confrontation with the police tomorrow morning, I'm assuming starting around 7 a.m. East Coast time. Um, And from what I'm seeing, this thing isn't going anywhere. Um, The people there and the people I've had the pleasure to work with are incredibly motivated. Uh, My personal interaction has been with the uh, Labor Organizing Committee where we're doing outreach to already established labor organizations in New York City um, and doing affiliated actions to kind of bring the Occupy Wall Street struggle into some of the labor struggles that are happening around the city. 
and it's been a great it's been awesome and very exciting and you know th- this is something different you're you're absolutely right that this is this is not about partisan politics and this is not about a change small changes this is a revolution in consciousness and they're making the media is finally covering it because it got bloody but uh you know th- this isn't going to go away and they're going to force people to at least hear them and consider the idea that we actually need to change in the way our system works as opposed to just dancing around the edges and trying to pass reforms that go nowhere. Matt, let me ask you a quick question. Uh, two questions, actually. Back to you. Uh, are you there now, and how many people would you say are at the park, or how many people do you expect to be at the park tomorrow morning? I'm in Brooklyn right now. I'm headed down there a little later this evening. Um, we're also starting a Brooklyn General Assembly to try to spread to more locations. But uh, in terms of the numbers at the park, I don't know how many are there today. It looked like there was about a thousand on the live stream. Um, that tomorrow, I expect there to be three to four thousand to resist the police efforts to clear the park. So I, that's just a guess, um, but I know I'll be there. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very Matt, much, Matt. Matt, just a, Matt, real quick question. Two questions. First. Yeah. Uh, first of all, do you agree with the statement I made earlier? Since you're so close to it, do you agree that it's a, basically it's a movement for social justice? Yes, I think social and economic justice are the key issues and you know, people I, claiming, include, I include economic automatically in social because without economic justice there is no social justice. But I agree with the distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean okay. you know the economic issues are what what everyone is focusing on because it's just so blatant. And and uh, mm-hmm. last question, uh, Tyler, as you go back down there, uh do you believe that they will in other words not just stay by tomorrow, but do you think with without a political adequate political response there will be people sitting in occupying Wall Street demonstrations all over the country a month from today? It depends on uh, the weather, I think, here in New York. People are planning to tough it out through the snow, um, and it depends on how these coalitions hang together and the solidarity shown. But I see no sign that this thing is actually weakening. I've only seen upward momentum. And do you, uh, I guess the last question, do you think it could lead to a, a third or fourth party? It's possible. Uh you know, I don't know. That's a good question. I think that it's going to be a really hard argument for the Democrats to make that somehow Occupy Wall Street should support them. Right. Okay. That's, that's what I see. Okay. Well, okay, thank you, Matt. Let's, Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank, again, thank you, Matt, very much for calling in. Right, let's go to our second call, and that's from area code 605. Uh, last three digits or four digits is 6,000. And I'm queuing you in. Uh, you should be on any second now as soon as this We'll travel with the switchboard. Okay, here you go. You are, you're on the air. Again, please identify yourself and state your question. Hello? I got area code 650. It's 650, and it's George McCown. Oh, George. Hi. How are you? Good to hear from you. Good. Um, Ronaldo, I just uh, sent you by email a, a piece by our friend Charlie Hess, a uh, fellow of the World Business Academy who runs Inferential Focus, on on this subject you have just covered, and the title is, Who Can Fight the Fire If the Kindling Catches Flame? <laughs> I'm just opening it, George. I didn't yeah, see it until just now, but thank you. It's terrific. And, I mean, you know, it's not, not comprehensive necessarily, but it certainly speaks broadly to uh, the point you're making. I uh, would just like to make a, a couple of comments. Number one, I... I really do separate business from Wall Street. Most business people that I know 
abhor Wall Street. The last people in the world, those of us who run companies want to deal with, are the people who run Wall Street, i.e. investment bankers, those kinds of guys who are basically don't make stuff, they just make money, and, and frequently at the expense of other people. So when we talk about business, we really need to be careful to segregate the broad business sector of folks who employ people that have jobs and deliver services and make stuff and, you know, all of that kind of thing, which is the vast, vast majority of the people from the folks who work on Wall Street and, uh, you know, trade as opposed to invest. And that's the second point I want to make. In the vernacular today, most people no longer talk about investing. They talk about this trade or that trade. I don't know if you've noticed that in the in the lingo, but it's not about investing in anything. It's it's about trading. It's about gambling. It's that great global casino that Willis Harmon used to rail about in his book Global Mind Change and used to talk about all the time that I frankly didn't either understand or agree with at the time, but now I see it coming to fruition. George, I'd actually like to, to expand that even further. As someone who works nominally for one of those so-called Wall Street firms, that my role as a as a retail advisor <clears throat> is yep. so far removed from the institutional world. My essential goal is to protect small clients, nonprofits, and so forth um, from financial upheaval. Uh, we have very little to actually do with the so-called investment banking reality that is out there. Yeah, um, I'm glad you, it's a completely I'm, different business. I'm, I'm glad you made that point because I had several other points I was going to make. The third thing is that the idea that banks are banks and are not really separate kinds of organizations uh, got melded together, I guess, during the late 90s somewhere. The Glass-Steagall Act kind mm -hmm. of went out the window. But the idea that we have banks who take in our deposits, our investments, and can then trade for their own accounts to make money. I, you know, it's just wrong. And it was wrong back in the 30s, and they got rid of it through legislation. We need to reinstitute that legislation again. And I completely agree with your point that the guys that I talk to, the brokers and the wealth advisors that I have, are frankly mostly in the job of trying to protect me. <laughs> from my own worst instincts frequently when I want to trade instead of instead of investing. By the way, George, before you go on, because you've yeah. got more points I want you to keep making, but I want to just tie a couple of these together. The first one is, uh, for those who don't know what uh, George is referring to in the Glass-Steagall Act that was removed, uh, the Volcker Rule, which is allowed for by the, um, the Dodd-Frank Bill, is currently under final um, deliberation, uh, and, and, and there will be regulations issued to bring back some or all of Glass-Steagall, and that is the so-called Volcker Rule. And for people who aren't watching that, they should be, because that's probably one of the most important things that could happen to reform Wall Street uh, that, uh, that's happening in, our, in, in, in your lifetime. The second, yeah. thing I wanna, the second point I want to make to George is it is absolutely true that Wall Street is not Main Street, meaning the people who make stuff is different from the people who buy and sell, basically trade on what other people make. The problem is, and this is what I'd like you to address, George, the problem is we in business, I'll include myself, I'll include you, we have been way too tolerant of a system that has been disproportionately favorable to, quote, banks, 
And by banks, I mean Wall Street <laughs> banks that are now include names like B of A as well, as you know. I, we've been way too tolerant, and as a result, we've let them disadvantage all of us in commerce to the point where the country's not being run for our benefit, and we're bigger than they are. Why do we let that happen? Can you address that? Uh, yeah. Well, I think it basically happened because of, of the removal of the legislation, which which separated those functions. I mean, in vet, when I spoke about the last people in the world we want to talk to as as guys who run businesses, is is Wall Street bankers. I'm talking investment bankers. I'm not talking about guys like you, Howard, that that you know fundamentally help us. I'm talking about the deal guys. Uh, you know the guys that fundamentally, uh, you know, do the do the big trades. Not about the guys that are dealing with the with the public. They only deal with that that one percent. The other the other thing is that this aristocracy thing, Ronaldo, is absolutely blatant. I've got a couple of friends who have made over the last few years in excess of a hundred million bucks each. And they make, <clears throat> they have their own G5s. And they've got so much money, they don't know what to do with it. So they fly around the world kind of going from one place to another. That's the Gulfstream 5, you you were saying. Yeah, you got yeah, Gulfstream 5. Yeah. It's a top, yeah. it's a top end private jet. Yeah. And they own a piece of one. Um, and I'm not against, by the way, owning airplanes, as Ronaldo well knows. I used to have one in my business that I used very productively. But... There's a 1% that has so much money now that they are, they do live like royalty used to live. It's just absolutely unbelievable. Right. And they, you know, they are told, they just live above all of this stuff that is going on. And it's not that they're bad people. In fact, most of them are quite philanthropic. And most of them are quite involved in politics. Several of them have reported on being at these meetings with the Koch brothers that they throw down in uh, Palm Springs and other places where there's concentrations are very wealthy. And these guys, you know, I don't know what they say at these meetings, but they'll raise 50, 100 million bucks at the meeting. It isn't just their money. And it's all about, you know, anti-government, let's take, let's take back our, our freedom. And I don't know what they say. I don't even know what they stand for, to be honest with you. Uh, but it is it is frightening. There is definitely a one percent that I won't say to run the country because these guys don't seem to be in control of anything as near as I can tell. And the fact is, they're not in control, so they're mad about it. Well, they they are in control in one sense, and that is they flood political the political process. And with the Citizens United case, George, the, I think the political process has become so distorted that there really is no place for people to go but the streets. I mean, it, the system is so rigged at this point yeah. that they have got to call attention to it and demand a fundamental change. And notice, I started by talking about the president today. I think that somebody has got – I hope these protests will cause him to get more uh, stiffness in his spine. Right. Because clearly, and Howard started to refer to earlier, how did he end up in such a mess two years after he got in office when two-thirds of what he did was actually very good for the country? He obviously made a massive political miscalculation. Okay, right. people do that. Even politicians of his caliber do that. But once he made that miscalculation, I am shocked by the fact that he hasn't rebounded. You know, to this day, George, he doesn't invite Paul Krugman 
or Stiglitz, Joseph Stiglitz, right. or guys like me to the White House to talk about economics. Right. He's still listening to Geithner. He's still listening to Summers and in the, in the, in their equivalents. Right. And he's still getting them the same result, which is he's about to be thrown out of office. If right. there is a fourth party, a third or fourth party, I do not believe Obama can be reelected. As Matt just said a minute ago, it's hard for me to see how Occupy Wall Street will accept unless the president really changes his direction. They're not going to accept these any better than the other team. They're going to say, you know what, a plague on both of your houses, which if you look at the statistics on where the American people have their confidence right now, like 13% believe the Congress is any good and only 37% believe the president is. That's yep. an alarming set of statistics. Yes, yes. Howard? Yes, we are down to our last five minutes. Maybe we can go over a few minutes today, but we do have a couple more questions in the queue. Um, just, I just want to say one thing here, which is a quote out of this document that I sent Ronaldo. Anger and frustration among citizens and arrogance and desperation among leaders as they deal with the great realignment which is coming. And the leader societies are, are amassing a variety of economic stressors, which we might call the kindling, which is in danger of being set ablaze. But thematically, they relate to joblessness, rising income inequality, and perhaps most importantly, a feeling that socioeconomic mobility has become limited as jobs in the core of the middle class become harder to find. That's a great quote. And George, while you got that document, I was just reading it myself, uh, the, um, the comment they make about youth. You see that about two paragraphs in? Yep. Read that. Yeah, it's, about, it's the youth. It's about youth. And what he's saying is, because the youth have been hurt the worst in terms of unemployment, equilibrium, job equilibrium, biggest debt trying to get through school, they have the least amount to worry about. They have the least to lose, and therefore they are in the streets. And you might notice it's the youth in the Arab Spring also. It is, it is the youth in the Arab Spring also. Right. Okay, okay, thanks, Howard. Thanks, George, for calling in, and uh, let's chat offline about some of this stuff. I'd love to keep talking. Okay, we're uh, gonna move. Howard, you want to do? And if anybody doesn't get their question answered in the show, uh, send us an email, and we will do it for sure in the next one, or we'll send you an email back in between. Go ahead, okay. Howard. We're gonna to go to area code five zero five, last four digits of the number nine one four one. I'm gonna cue you in right now. Again, state who you are and your question succinctly. Hello, area code five zero five, last number nine one four one. I'm here. This is David in Santa Fe, and I wanted to uh, let everybody know that MoveOn.org um, has a petition going right now to uh, tell Bloomberg that trying to uh, evict people tomorrow morning is definitely the wrong move. And you can sign that petition, and you can call his office. They have his phone number. Very good. Thank you for that. Uh, Ronaldo. as I said, we just have a few moments left in the show. Um, Thank you, David, for that. Appreciate the yeah. uh, for the update. Right. Um, do you want to give us a wrap up here, maybe a tiny little bit on Greece and why that matters? Okay, just a little bit on Greece, and we'll wrap. And then again, and please, everybody, if you have questions, as soon as they occur to you, by all means, send them in, and we'll get back to you at the very least. We'll get back to you on the next show. We'll we'll start with answering your questions. Second thing is, start following my Twitter if you don't already do it. Ronaldo Brutico Twitter at you know Ronaldo Brutico. Just go to Twitter, follow me because I'm increasingly going to be putting more and more stuff up there as I learn the system and I'm starting to, which I hope will be useful to you. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that the, 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 the nuggets that I throw out there will prove to be useful pieces of information that you can do to protect yourself in times of great turmoil and, and, and incredible challenge. Um, Greece is very simply this. The Greece challenge is fundamentally about the fact that the European Union, when it agreed to monetary union, 
so when it created the euro. It created a sophisticated way for people to get into the euro. It didn't create any mechanism for them to get out. Inherently, that can't work because you can't have monetary union without fiscal union. So there's one of two choices that have to happen. Either Europe has to drop the pretense it's not trying to become one country, in which case it has to say, okay, we're going to have a central bank, the EBCB. We're, going to, we're, also, uh, we're, uh, we're also going to have a central law-giving authority, the European Parliament. And then we're going to have a federal set of states called Germany and France and Italy. And we'll be a federated, much like the United States was originally, a federation of states rather than a uh, union of states. So there's going to have to be some kind of federation of Europe in order to make the monetary union work called the euro. The only other choice, that's choice A, which, as you know, the political resistance to that is enormous. Choice B is that when a country falls behind in its commitments to the union, either in terms of its inflation rates or in terms of its deficits, it has to be allowed to leave the union, the monetary union, without leaving the common market. Why is that critical? Because if the Greeks were allowed to leave the euro, which they would like to do, and start issuing drachmas again, their debt would be cut in half. A whole bunch of European banks would take the haircut they deserve, because frankly, why should we guarantee the banks again? Okay, and you got four French banks that are hanging by a thread and two German ones that are in trouble. But hey, and, and, and they both sold debts to American banks, so this is not something that's going to stop in Europe if it gets going. But the point of this story is you have to let the Greeks resolve their problem by having their currency fall to a level that's equal to what their economic output is. So they have to have their own separate currency. I'm not saying they can't reapply to belong to the euro in the future, but they have to be allowed to leave now, as does any country that can't get itself back, under, back on track. When they do that, what will happen is the Greeks will have a tremendous advantage for their agricultural sector. Their farmers will be able to make butter and milk and wool and, 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 and olives and all the other things that they eat in Europe and across the world much cheaper than anybody else in the European Union, which means that the farmers in France won't have as many subsidized crops to sell. Well, that's just the way it has to be because there's nothing, it, they can't have it both ways. They can't have subsidized agricultural products which are artificially too expensive so that the Greeks can't sell them any cheaper. And have, a, and have a monetary union that will survive. So it's time for the, the Europeans have got to make a fundamental choice. Either create the, the Federated States of Europe, which is the one way to go, or recognize that anything short of letting the Greeks and a few other countries go out if they want to is inevitable. Why do I say that? Because the amount of the bailout, which just got approved, is a fraction of what it would take just to keep the Greek and the European situation under control for the next 12 to 24 months. I just said it's at most 12 to 24 months. And I can make a case it's a lot shorter than that. So when you know the end is coming that quickly, you really need to have a better plan because this plan is a Band-Aid, which you know when you pull, apply it cannot work over time. That's Greece. I would welcome any questions about Greece, Por uh, Portugal, Italy, Spain, Germany, France, Slovakia, which is where the crisis happened this week, any of those countries and all of them, I'd love to chat about it if anybody has a question, and I'll try and do some more of that type of European stuff on my Twitters. Okay, is anybody, um, is anybody happy with that or not? I don't think so. I don't think anybody in Europe is happy with the conclusions I just drew. 
but I've also not found anybody thoughtful who can show me why those two conclusions aren't correct. And I would welcome anybody who can. So if anybody's listening who can do that, please enlighten me. Other than that, thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great session. Love the calls. Thank you for sending them in. Starting next week, we want your questions to come in ahead of time, which much prefer that. But I want to thank those who called in today particularly and for all of you who are listening. Howard? Thank you, Ronaldo. Uh, also, again, our next show will be on, I believe, the 13th of November, if I'm correct. Um, it's, again, the second Thursday of the month. That may be a day or two off. I don't have the calendar in front of me, so I apologize for that. Uh, again, send your questions in to info at worldbusiness.org. Actually, I can say it's, it's, no, it's the, uh, it is the uh, 10th of November. 10th of November. Thank you 10th. for that correction. I had a little typo there. Um Again, send your questions in to info at worldbusiness.org. You've got a whole month to send in questions. We will then uh, sort through those beforehand and pick out the most relevant ones on the air. We look forward to you, and we appreciate all of you tuning in and listening. And again, as a reminder, you can also go to the website and listen to any of our past shows um, at worldbusiness.org. With that, let's say good day, and thank you all for listening. Bye-bye now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.